I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. There is something going around, and I'm not talking about COVID or monkeypox, but once you get the bug, you won't be able to quit. It can be all-consuming, dominating your thoughts and sometimes your behavior. After a while, you'll have a hard time driving past a yard sale or a thrift store because you'll have to check to see if they have that gem, that elusive item you've been searching for. When you finally found it, it's as if you've unearthed the holy grail. I'm talking about vinyl, y'all. Phono records, albums, wax platters, the things that give disc jockeys their name. Today's episode is all about vinyl music in Music City. From record pressing to collecting to our town is a hub of all things that spin around at 33 and a third and 45 and 78. But first, literally, it is the 1st of July and we head into as we head into the holiday weekend, there's some new state laws that take effect today. There are also some controversial measures that were debated fiercely before they were passed by the state legislature, and there were some not-so-controversial ones. Here to help us sort it all out is WPLN senior editor Chas Sisk. Chas, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. So, all right, first up, as of today, Tennessee is the first state in the country to make it a felony for people to camp out overnight on public property. What are critics of this law saying? Um, Yeah, they basically say this criminalizes homelessness, and uh, that's a a pretty... a pretty uh, a strong statement to make, you know. But as an editor, as someone who works with words, it's, it's kind of hard and thinks through this kind of stuff. It's kind of hard to disagree with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, what they're saying is that it is a, a felony to sleep on public property after you've been given a warning 24 hours in advance. If you stay on that property, then you're subject to criminal criminal felony penalties. It's already, of course, a crime to stay on private property to uh, just to trespass. So, I mean, you're looking at if you can't be in a place that's public, you can't be in a place that's private. It's hard to understand where you'd be able to to sleep outside to rough sleep uh, without incurring some sort of criminal penalties in Tennessee. Last night I was having a conversation with my neighbors who are fans of the show. Thank you all very much. And they mentioned this law and Mm -hmm. they said in their words, they called it cruel. Um, So. How did this law come about? Yeah, um, well, to, to that point about the about the cruel, I mean, there are a lot of misgivings about this law that are out there. Governor Bill Lee did not sign this bill when uh, it went through. He said he had a lot of problems with it. Uh, did not veto it either in Tennessee. It's very easy to override a veto, a veto in Tennessee. So allowed it to go into, into law without his signature, saying that he thought the social services could handle this problem a lot better. Uh, to your question about what brought this up, and it's really a very long story on this that, about this. And going back, you go to go back to the um, Occupy Nashville movement. That's when the legislature first criminalized uh, camping in public. Was when there were a lot of protesters on the plaza outside of the state legislature, and setting up camp for weeks and weeks on end. They made it a crime then to do to uh, camp on public on state property without permission. You saw in 2020 there was another round of protests. They upped the penalties there, made it a felony to camp on state grounds without permission. Uh, and now this is being extended to uh, to to all public property, including those that are run by the city. I think in response to some of the um, prob- some of the uh, controversies that have been in places like Nashville about people camping out in parks and complaints about that. But it, it's, it's it's very much a leap from what was before. Very much a, a program that was a, a bill that was very much targeted at protesters to what we're seeing today, which is a very broad, uh, broadly applied law to really just about anybody who's sleeping in public. Also going into effect today is the so-called truth in sentencing mm-hmm. law. What is truth in sentencing? 
Well, I mean, it's very much a backlash to, I think, what we've been seeing uh, around the country, these calls for um, for, for police reforms and for, uh, for some different alternatives to policing. You know, at the same time, anytime you've got a program uh, or, or call out there to, to do something very different in, in, um, in the public life, you'll see a backlash to that. I think that's a lot of what's motivating this. Um, and also, um, there has been some increased concerns about crime, if that's really not necessarily bar- borne out by the numbers, but increased concerns about crime often will lead to an action, you know, whether or not there's the reality on the ground. All right. So back in March, we talked about truth and sentencing here on the show with Samantha Max, our now former criminal justice reporter. We miss you, Sam. Glad that you're doing well. She sat down with Tony Parker, who served as the commissioner of the Department of Corrections up until last year. And he said that getting rid of early release for many crimes takes away incentives for people in prison to do the kinds of programming that could address bad behaviors. Here's what he said. Do you want someone moving in next door to you that has served 100 percent of their time? Right. It sounds good on the front end, but at the end of the day, they've gone in, received very little programming, no incentives to change the conduct, and they're released without supervision into the community. Uh, Or do you want someone who has completed drug and alcohol therapy, uh, anger management, and has a vocational uh, trade where they have a meaningful job that moves in next door? Uh, That is the key. Chaz, the former TDOC commissioner was at odds with this governor, with the governor on this, right? Uh, yes, he was, and he was also especially at odds with the uh, state legislature on this. You know, the governor has very much been a, an advocate for programs that uh, for rehabilitation in general for people in prison. He's part of a program called Men of Valor that that targets. Um, uh, rebuilding the lives of men in prison. State the state legislative leaders, though the House Speaker, the Senate Speaker, very much I think responding to some of the uh, the backlash uh, about uh, th- this perception that things have gotten too soft on uh, on crime. I think in response to that, are really are, are, are we're pushing this through. So it very it, it's it, it was an interesting thing to come out of the legislature at a time when the winds seemed to be shifting towards um, towards more rehabilitation programs, towards more training, towards more drug treatment. Okay, moving on. Mm -hmm. There is a new law related to transgender athletes. Break that down for us. Yeah, well, there's, I think, a couple parts to this about transgender athletes. There is uh, some now penalties for schools that defy the state um, and allow transgender athletes to compete uh, in the the gender that aligns with their gender identity. Um, That has not happened in Tennessee yet. Um, I think it's probably a matter of time before it does, just given uh, the increased visibility for transgender people in this country and and more people uh, identifying themselves at a younger age. Uh, The other thing that it does is it tries to extend this ban that the legislature implemented in recent years to, at the high school level, tries to extend it up to the college level. Um, I think there's a lot of real questions, uh, certainly in my mind, um, about uh, enforceability. I mean, when you start talking about intercollegiate athletics, you're talking about interstate commerce. You're talking about organizations that are far outside of Tennessee. Um, and it's, I think it would be a really interesting question to see how they actually try to implement a ban on transgender athletes competing in competitions in Tennessee when maybe they're with a university that's, that's 500, 600, 700 miles away. Mm. That law passed, and we should note that a number of other laws aimed at LGBTQ people were proposed last session, mm-hmm. including one that would make it harder for trans people to medically transition and another protecting teachers who refer to students using the wrong pronouns. Our host, Mariana Bacchiao, did some reporting on that, which you can find at WPLN.org. Now, books have been a hot topic this right. year. Another new law in the hands, more it hands more power to the State Textbook Commission. 
Can you explain that? Yeah, you know, that's a really uh, interesting dynamic that's happened here with the State Textbook Commission. That's been very much a, 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 a almost, I wouldn't quite say a backwater in Tennessee in terms of politics, but has not been a political organization, a group that's really been much focused on uh, politically in Tennessee. And this idea of the State Textbook Commission having a role in reviewing what books are in public school libraries came out very late in the legislative session as they were debating all these different ideas about banning books in, in schools, and, and or as they would say, like making sure the books are age appropriate. Um, what I think is most interesting about this is that um, is that if a parent objects to a book that's in a school library, the first step is to go to their district. If the district says, no, we think this book is fine, now they have a right to appeal to the State Textbook Commission. And some of the appointments to that Textbook Commission in recent years have become a more politically uh, charged, more politically engaged people. I'm, I'm thinking of, in particular about one member, Lori Cardoza Moore. Uh, she's a Williamson County um, uh, uh, citizen. She's running for the uh, state legislature down there, and I mean has a has a long history of um, uh, of anti-Muslim um, activism and some other things out there. And now she and some others they, they have a, a, some say over what textbooks and um, not even just textbooks, what books are in the libraries across the state. Mm. I I understand there's also a new law that blocks cities from preventing new oil pipelines. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, this uh, grew out of a controversy in Memphis um, that has played out in, in different ways in different parts of the state. But in, in Memphis uh, last year, there was, a block, there, was, there was a pipeline that was blocked uh, at the municipal level to try to keep it from crossing through their territory. Um, we're seeing a very similar dispute play out in Dixon County now about a, about a pipeline that would connect to the Cumberland Furnace um, power plant for TVA. They're looking to transition that plant from coal to natural gas. Some concerns in that community about that pipeline running through there. And, and basically the state legislature is saying, no, this is not a local issue. This is something that only the state and the federal governments can regulate. And so basically a municipality and a county, they have no way to, to they're not allowed to block a pipeline. Hmm. Where can we find some more context for well, this? Yeah, and Caroline Eggers, um, our environmental reporter, has done quite a bit of reporting on that. You can find that at WPLN.org. Um, you know, it's uh, she's she's really dug into this issue, not just the pipeline controversy, but also just the transition of Cumberland Furnace in general and what's going to be done with that. Uh, the city of Nashville has pushed for some green energy there as as um, as a possibility there too. So, you know, pipelines, access to natural gas, um, pipelines. If you want to go natural gas, you need a pipeline. If you if a pipeline gets blocked, then it means you got to think of something else. And so I think it's um, it really does interplay with a lot of other things happening at the at the state level with um, with utilities. After yesterday, Citizen Nashville about the city budget, I've got my mind on my money. Yeah. And so what about the state budget? Is there anything interesting there we should know about? Oh, you know, the state budget is always a thousand little stories out there, you mm. know? I mean, I think the big thing that stands out to me about the state budget is just how many different ways they've tried to cut taxes in it. Um, you know, I mean, this is a, a, a Republican state. It's very much in favor of smaller government of cutting taxes. The budget itself is, there's a lot of money coming into Tennessee. I mean, it's uh, even through the pandemic, a lot of uh, revenue has been coming into the state still. Um, and so the way they've, their priority, I mean, there's a couple things they could have done. One is they could have put more money into services. Instead, they're cutting taxes. Um, so there's going to be a sales tax holiday on groceries in the month of August. Um, that's going to be a pretty big, um, pretty big hit to the, to the bottom line for the state. There's, um, going to be, um, uh, there's going to be a, there's re vehicle registration fees. There's going to be a break on that. There's going to be a break on privilege taxes for professionals. Mm. going to be a, bre a break on broadband. Um, so a lot of tax breaks kind of adding up here for the, for the coming year. 
Now, I know these don't necessarily take effect today, but what's the latest on Tennessee's abortion laws? Yeah, I mean, abortion is a, a very much an evolving um, law here in Tennessee. Um, it's a, there was the, the state laws that were passed on this were two contradictory one. I shouldn't say contradictory. There were two different state laws passed on this in 2019 and 2020. Um, what's happening right now is um, the courts have allowed a, a ban on abortion if there's any fetal activity, or I shouldn't say fetal, embryonic activity, cardiac activity in the embryo. Um, and that typically happens around six weeks um, after uh, into pregnancy. And then, um, but there's a provision that it, um, if there's no cardiac activity, then an abortion can happen up to eight weeks. So there's there's kind of this gray area there. The other thing that's that's gray is when this total ban, which would ban abortion all the way back to fertilization, when that's going to take effect. Uh, right now, the attorney general is saying they're, they're expecting by mid-August. Um, it's a little up in the air because um, procedurally, um, there's a few things that need to happen at the Supreme Court before um, the Tennessee's law goes into effect that have not yet happened. Of course, they've issued their opinion. We know where it's going to go. Um, I, I won't get into the legal stuff. I, I learned a lot of stuff about this, too, about sort of how the Supreme Court works. Okay. Um, but we're looking at probably about mid-August before this total ban on abortion goes into effect. You can find all our reporting on the impact of the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade at our website, WPLN.org. All right, Chaz, what's the oddest law that becomes official today? Well, I, I will admit I'm not as, as schooled on this as I used to be when I covered the legislature, but the one that's, that everyone seems to be uh, focused on is this earwax uh, regulation law. It says hmm. that um, if you want to become a licensed professional, if you want to remove earwax in this state professionally, you have to be a licensed professional. You got to go through some training. You got to do six six uh, hours of monitored earwax removal, monitor um, okay. removal. Okay. And uh, I mean, you could like you could see. I mean, ears are are, are a delicate um, a delicate organ, so you can see why it's important. But um, it's yeah. uh, it's certainly a, an odd thing to you think the state's. It's an odd thing for the state to be regulating. Um, but that's what government does. It does a lot of things that you would not expect. You got to get your Q-tip handling skills on point if you want to be I think it's, yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. Well, in any case, you definitely want clean ears for what we'll be talking about later this hour. Chaz Sisk is senior editor here at WPLN. Chaz, thanks for the roundup. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're putting the needle on the record. Well, metaphorically speaking, as we're getting to the world of vinyl collection and production. Are you a vinyl lover? Tell us about it. Just tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The demand for vinyl has been on the rise over the last 20 years or so, and it's skyrocketed over the course of the pandemic. To learn more about how those records are made, we sent producer Rose Gilbert and intern Doreen Schernecki to the United Record Pressing Facility in South Nashville. United Record Pressing is the oldest and largest record pressing company in North America, and it started right here in Nashville back in 1949. According to CEO Mark Michaels, they wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Well, we think it's it's a it's a, a privilege to be in Nashville. It, it, Nashville is is you know one of the ultimate music communities, and, and you have a wonderful ecosystem that you know, supports you know music broadly, and that certainly embraces vinyl. And you know the fact that we were born here, you know, 73 years ago, um, 
again, is a great privilege. And you know, why would you ever want to leave? Um, it, it, it's it, it's perfect. You have artists and you have producers and and you know and engineers and everybody you kind of need to bring together to make a great record. And um, uh, you can't do that on a Zoom call. Uh, so we're happy and we feel fortunate that we get to do it here. First things first, making vinyl is loud. The process starts out in the cutting room. Hi, Mark. That's hard. And it, it all starts here. The star of the show is the cutting lathe. Think of it as basically a record player in reverse. A record player uses a needle to read grooves on a disc as it spins around and then that vibration comes out as sound. With a cutting lathe, sound from an audio file is fed into the machine. That causes its needle, which is actually a small ruby, to vibrate and carve grooves onto an aluminum disc. So instead of using a needle to read grooves in a disc and turn that into music, it takes music and carves it into a disc as grooves. That disc is then used as a mold to create metal stamps. Then, those stamps are used to press records. Next up, a big hanger-like room full of machines. Gallons of small PVC pellets are poured into hoppers, heated up using steam, and formed into soft, hockey puck-sized lumps, also known as biscuits. Now it's time for those metal stamps that were made earlier. So once the record is pressed and the, and the grooves are pressed into that hot biscuit, the record then is brought forward and is brought to the trim pad there where it'll spin around and it will trim off the excess vinyl, or what we call flash, so you have a perfectly round record with nice smooth edges. Then they pop out onto a tray to cool. Finally, the records are packaged, shrink-wrapped, and boxed up to be sent out to independent shops and major retailers across the country. United Record Pressing is planning to add dozens of new pressing machines and 200 new jobs over the coming year. That's to keep up with the high demand for vinyl we're seeing right now. My first guest knows all about vinyl production. Jason Herndon is the founder of Kiss My Wax Records. He joins us now. Jason, welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. All right, so we just heard about how records are physically made, and this is where albums that you all get pressed. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we actually... I. I also work for United Record Pressing, not on the pressing side, on the distribution side. Mark Michaels is actually my boss, but okay. uh, I do have a boutique record label uh, with a partner of mine, and we just re uh, released a record by the band called Slaughter. And um, yeah, we had it pressed at United Record Pressing. How did you come to create your own boutique label? Well, there, it probably started about, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, um, a former partner of mine, we were discussing um working with some artists and labels and just doing limited run um vinyl pressings of of certain records where we would go to the label and license uh records out uh that they may not be releasing on their own and you know the the title is just sitting there and really nothing's being done with it so we decided to license a, a, a few records and then we would reach out to the artists directly 
and work with them, maybe get them to sign a certain amount of the records that we had printed up. And then we, you know, sell them direct to consumer on our website. So what's the vibe of your label? What kind of stuff do you guys put out? Well, it's uh, the first, um, the first artist we worked with, it was Ace Fraley from, uh, from Kiss. We did uh, three releases with Ace and, um, and so I guess the vibe would be more like a hard rock, um, heavy metal, uh, 80s, 90s metal kind of thing. So we've worked with Ace Fraley. We've worked with a band called Slaughter, uh, had you know several hits in the early 90s. And we're also uh, releasing a couple of records uh, by a band called Warrant, who also had mm-hmm. uh, several hits in the late 80s and early 90s. I remember them. So how, mm-hmm. how far back does your relationship with vinyl go? When did you start collecting records? Oh, uh, you know, I'm 46. I'll be 47 this year. I got my first record in 1979 when I was four, you know, and uh, it was a Kiss record. And I've been a Kiss fanatic my whole life. I have about, I don't know, 700 Kiss LPs behind me in my shelf right now. Uh, So it's, it's been a long time. It's been a lifetime. Okay. A lifetime. Okay, well, if you're in East Nashville and you have the itch to go record shopping, it's likely that you'll run into my next guest. Doyle Davis is the rec- is a record collector and co-owner of Grimey's Record Store. Doyle, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, Nashville is known as Music City, but we can also say it's becoming Vinyl City as well, right? What's that all about? Well, um, I mean, demand for vinyl, as you've already uh, said, is just gone through the roof. It's been growing strongly, steadily since 2007, though, when Record Store Day was created. And uh, it's just, we've watched our product shift from CDs to vinyl over that time, where uh, I still sell CDs, but not a lot of them. The whole demand is vinyl. We wouldn't be in business without it right now. What's the inspiration behind Record Store Day? I I wasn't able to make it this year, and I'm really mad at myself for that. But (laughs) tell me, what inspired Record Store Day to come into creation? Well, record stores inspired it. We've organized over the years. We have coalitions of independent record stores. And um, we noticed at the height of sort of the, um, you know, Napster into iTunes era, Uh there seemed to be um, you know, a narrative out there that record stores were going away, were going out of business. Some chains closed, and that only drove the narrative further. Um, but all of us are sitting here going, business is great. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're selling as much or more stuff than we ever had. So we sort of organized to make it a grassroots marketing initiative, I guess you'd say, to turn a spotlight back on the record store, uh, create some record releases that you can only buy at an independent store on that day. You can't order them online. You've got to actually go down to the shop. And it's been wildly successive. successful, absolutely. You mentioned CDs coming into the fore and uh, vinyl production kind of dropping off in the 90s. I remember vinyl being popular even as cassette tapes were rocking around. Everybody had their Sony Walkman and you had the auto reverse. You were fancy yeah. at that time. And uh, you know, through the 90s, through the 2000s, records kind of lowered. As a record purveyor, what was that period of time like for you? Well, um, all that happened was it became harder than ever to source new releases on vinyl. Uh, Just about every independent record store out there is also selling used records, and we saw demand for the used records never drop off. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I knew the demand for for vinyl was there all along. They just, the industry itself had turned away from it, uh, chasing the shiny new thing where they don't have to actually manufacture, warehouse, or distribute anything with digital. So... I think there was a lot of um, 
um, desire in the industry to offload uh, this this nasty physical thing that took so much care to keep. I mean, just shipping the records alone and getting them uh, yeah. to the store without them being damaged and dinged is constant. Uh, you know. Yeah, Jason, what was that time like for you? Oh, in the '90s, uh, uh, just like Doyle said, it's uh, you know, it was a it was a sad time because I had always collected vinyl. I too, just like most everybody, moved on to uh, to or didn't move on, but certainly started purchasing CDs, and uh, and I actually managed record stores uh, in the late '90s through the 2000s uh, at the height of the CD boom, and but. Uh, I was also the first manager in my chain of record stores. I used to work for a chain of record stores called Cats Music that uh, existed mm -hmm. here in Nashville. And uh, I was one of the first stores to uh, in that chain. Actually, I was the first store to add a vinyl rack back. And it was probably in about 2002, mm. three or something like that. So That's... it was very early on in the boom. And yeah. you couldn't get hardly anything. You know, you like Nirvana, Nevermind, and a bunch of you know, maybe a, a, a bunch of indie rock titles, you know, that that's about all you could get. But uh, it, we had it in Murfreesboro and uh, but right beside MTSU and, and uh, it, it was very successful, but our, our owner didn't embrace it at the time. So, yep. And now all of your old record racks live at Grimey's. There you go. All the vinyl, you, you... <laughs> all the vinyl racks at Grimey's came from Cat's record stores. I, I think in <laughs> the great right. escape. I think in the great escape too. So there you go. It's it's sustainable. I love it. So if you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake We're talking about vinyl records, y'all, with Jason Herndon of Kiss My Wax Records and Doyle Davis, co-owner of Grimey's Record Store. Doyle, I'm curious, what are the biggest movers at Grimey's? Well, it's, uh, you know, for years and years, it was kind of that indie rock sort of uh, underground music. But now uh, vinyl has grown and exploded to such a degree that we're selling tons of pop titles. You know, mm. uh, Harry Styles, Billie Eilish, uh, Taylor Swift. Um, I just see the volume uh, that we're ordering and selling. And those things are, you know, I mean, they're, we sell a war on drugs really well as well. But mm. the fact is the pop artists sell just as well is our core indie artists that we used to rely on for practically the whole new part of our business. What do you guys really struggle to keep in stock? Everything. <laughs> Seriously, just due to the, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of capacity to meet demand that's happening right now. So it's changed our buying strategies. You know, if Kendrick Lamar to Pimp a Butterfly is available now, I don't order just five copies uh, that generally will sell within a week or two and then order five more and then five more. I'm ordering, let's get 45 uh, because I know last time I went back to the well, it was dry. And this time I want to have the record in the store for a period of time. So I assume other stores are, are changing their buying strategies like we are. And that means when a title is available again, it sells out that much faster because everybody's trying to grab what they can. You know, I've been collecting for 25 years now. And from my experience, I've learned that if you're looking for records in a place like New York or Los Angeles, you have to really spend a lot of time because there's so many people out there who know what they're doing and they're digging through records. Yep. I'm curious about the Nashville shopper. What makes them different? Well, um, all the trends that you're probably familiar with from your experience are happening here, too. Um, I think Nashville's just such a music town, and there's so much music swirling around here, such a, a large creative class. Um, I mean, we sell tons of Americana 
artists. Mm -hmm. You know, that might be our niche that's different from some other record stores. I mean, I can sell Jason Isbell and Chris Stapleton records, you know, uh, Margot Price, Casey Musgraves. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, she sells like, you know, the Beatles or whatever. I can't, it's another one I can't keep in stock. Um, but, you know, I, I think record stores bring a particular person in. Uh, we're still getting used to seeing the average, everyday, more mainstream-oriented person coming in our shops. It's a fairly new development. I mean, I love it. It's great for business, and it's great for seeing the future, uh, feeling like it's secure. Absolutely. Now, I feel like we're over the hump, if you will. All right. Now, Jason, streaming platforms have made it incredibly convenient to play our favorite tunes anywhere, anytime. But the popularity of vinyl is growing. What is it about vinyl records that streaming just can't duplicate? Well, I think it's the experience, you know, and I think a lot of us that have been in the vinyl our whole life uh, remembered back when that was the primary way to listen to music. It wasn't just background, you know, streaming seems to put music in the background of, you know, for everyone, it's just playing, it's not the same record, it's playlist and all that stuff. But mm -hmm. back then, if I wanted to go listen to Kiss Destroyer, I took that record out, I had it in my hands, I, you know, put it on my turntable, put the needle on the record, and I listened to all of side A, and I'm holding that artwork in my hand, and I'm looking at it, and I'm reading all the liner notes. And I'm having, you know, it, it was a uh, you you purposely went to listen to music and you were paying attention to the music you weren't just you know playing your spotify playlist while you're vacuuming you know what i mean yeah so you can never duplicate that experience you know of uh of listening to a, a record now some people don't want to invest in the equipment necessary to play vinyl Although you see, you, you do see, I've seen the modern day USB turntables sold at like Target and Walmart. Doyle, what would you recommend as a good starter kit for beginning collectors? <laughs> um, well, if you really don't want to spend a lot of money, go with a, a, a tried and trusted brand. Um, Audio Technica makes some uh, products that uh, you know start in the hundred dollar range that are actually really good uh, record players, and they're not going to harm your records, and they're going to begin to get out of them what you what you want, what what the vinyl magic is. I mean, the thing is, you have to have a decent player for that really to happen. Jason's right. I think a lot of the uh, the love of vinyl is just paying more closer attention to the music. Mm -hmm. um, but man, if you want to get into sound quality, it's there and you can scale up. Um, so you can get you a, uh, a turntable uh, that's got a built-in preamp and most of the uh, lower models do now and get you a pair of powered speakers. Okay. which a lot of people have hooked at their TVs or whatever. And uh, that way you don't need an, an interim amp or receiver. You can literally go home, hook the speakers to your record player, and start playing records. Before I let you both go, I need to know, what was the first album you purchased? Jason? Hmm. Kiss Destroyer. <laughs> Kiss Destroyer. Doyle. That's Alice. why I kept talking about it. <laughs> Alice Cooper schools out. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. My, my first purchase was... Curtis Blow's 12-inch The Breaks. Ah. Oh. I, I played I, that until the needle broke, yeah. and I got grounded. I got that. I got one of those. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I want to thank my guests, Jason Herndon, founder of Kiss My Records, and Doyle Davis, co-owner of Grimey's Record... Kiss My Wax Records. Sorry. And <laughs> um, Doyle Davis, co-owner co of Grimey's Record Store. Thanks to you both for being here. And you'll both be seeing me soon doing some digging and shopping. Nice. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. 
We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the lasting appeal of vinyl records with a longtime collector, a musician, and a DJ. Are you a vinyl collector? What is your prized piece? Tweet us about it at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The year is 1984. I'm looking through my parents' record collection, and I'm finding some familiar names. Stevie Wonder, Miles Davis, The Four Tops. I'm also getting introduced to some artists I've never heard of. Artists like Sun Ra and Taj Mahal. For me, the artwork of the album covers is what first drew me in. Luscious, colorful works of art that represent the world of sound conveyed in the album. I find an album from the funk band The Ohio Players. The title is Honey. It's a gatefold album, so it opens like a birthday card. On the cover, there is a very beautiful woman who is wearing nothing but large amounts of honey. When my father finds me with it, he decides it's time for the talk about the birds and the bees. To this day, it's still one of my favorite records. For me, collecting and listening to vinyl has been a lifelong experience, and it has lasting appeal. My next guests know all about the draw and nostalgia of vinyl. I'd like to welcome veteran record collector Paul Lucero, DJ Erica, Pat Lucero, sorry, DJ Erica Schultz, who is the host of WXNA's The Soul of the City, and hip-hop producer Chris Jones, a.k.a. M. Slago to the show. Thanks to you all for being with us. Thank you. Thanks. So Thank you. I, I want to start with the old school vinyl collector. Pat, when did you first begin to collect vinyl? Oh, gosh, this was a very, uh, I was very young. I'm 58. And so, uh, you know, I remember uh, really kind of snatching my, my mom's 45s of some of the 50s stuff and uh i got i got hooked onto the beatles and and nat king cole and and elvis and and stuff like that and then finally i found my 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 niche and i found the osmonds and so it was a donny osmond <clears throat> osmonds jackson five kind of a thing going on all the time so uh you know i was introduced to 45s until i was old enough to actually start buying my own records so how did your, your love of records begin? Was it with the Osmonds and the Jacksons? Um, actually, yeah. It was, you know, Stevie Wonder and all the, all the AM stuff, Captain into Neil, you know, Neil Sadaka, mm -hmm. all that kind of cool, you know, uh, real hooky kind of AM, you know, songs. Uh, stuff that you can just sing and whistle all day long, you know. You know, that kind of stuff I was drawn to real quick, uh, you know, uh, there's a, there's a quote that says, don't bore us, get us to the chorus. Well, it, it, it hooked me, you know, hook, line, and sinker right there. Okay. Erica, how about you? When did you first fall for vinyl records? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, from the time I was born. Um, my dad and his family, very musical. Uh, he has four brothers, and all of them had vinyl. And every two or three months, we would rotate and go to house parties, and they would drop the Stevie Wonder and the Michael Jacksons and the Marvin Gaye's. And at 9 o'clock, we would be shuttled upstairs and whenever we heard something drop like 
let's say Billie Jean, literally Mm -hmm. me and my 12 cousins would be dancing (laughs) all over. But yeah, um, I really started getting into it from a baby on. Uh, My dad even made um, recordable eight track cassettes so that he can listen to his albums in the car. Okay. And then um, probably around my teens, I started buying stuff. Um, Michael Jackson, obviously, Prince and Madonna. That's my whole time period. I'll be sure. Uh, Gregory Abbott. All oh, kinds yeah. Of, <laughs> all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And then I, like everybody else, went into the cassette phase and the CD phase. Um, and then in my 20s, I started club DJing and radio DJing. And so when you're a club DJing, especially like house music and drum and bass, which is what I was doing, you go to a record store and you're spending um, an hour minimum, maybe three hours maximum, because you're digging through. And with club DJing, you don't know what you're playing because it's white label. Mm -hmm. And so you have to listen to it. And you have to not only listen to it for, you know, your entertainment, but also for business. Where does the song drop? Where where can I... um, peak the sounds, things like that. And so my 20s was a, a big time of record collecting, but I was also doing the CDs and cassettes too because I needed something in my car. I needed something in my classroom that I could quickly play. Um, I let go of the vinyl um, probably in my 30s, and then when I moved here to Nashville, um, got all my vinyl back from my dad, okay. the ones he let me have. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to ask if you got all of them back. No, there's, that some, there's some where he's like, yeah, you can get it when I'm dead. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. And then um, my uncle, um, he passed away, and I ended up getting not only a bunch of 45s from Nashboro Records and gospel and R&B and rock, but I also got a beautiful um, record player that was also a cabinet. And so um, now that's in my house, and that's what I listen to vinyl today. And I use some of the vinyl to DJ out. Okay. Now, M. Slago, you just released an album and decided to press it on vinyl. Why did you make that choice? I think just with... I'm a hip-hop producer. Yeah. And within hip-hop culture, not just the music, but in in culture, vinyl was our first introduction to the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. if you think about it from that aspect. Mm -hmm. So there's a deep connection to vinyl from the start. So getting into hip-hop production and making hip-hop music, what other... It's like going back to the Holy Grail. Like, what other way can you connect at the deepest root and give other people that same experience that you had and that we've all had as children listening to vinyl, whether it was ours or not, um, but specifically with hip hop, it's at the root, and you can't. I feel like any hip hop artist that does impress a vinyl at some point, at least once in their life, is doing themselves a great disservice. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the difference in preparing your music, mixing it, producing it for a digital platform as opposed to preparing it for vinyl? Uh, it gets into a lot of EQing. Um, you have to consider the medium that you're listening on. With digital, there's sky's the limit. Lows and highs. Granted, you know, you're getting a degradation of quality of sound when you get into converting into MP3s and things of that nature. Uh, but with vinyl, you have to make sure that you're not you're not piercing too much on the highs. You got to make sure that your mid levels are strong, not too much on the low end because it is a physical, tangible piece of of vinyl. So mm-hmm. that record or that vinyl, the needle can skip mm-hmm. if that bass is hitting a little bit too hard. So you can't rattle the trunk on vinyl. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to take that into consideration. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking about the legacy, wonder, and warmth of vinyl with record enthusiast Paul Pat Lucero, DJ Erica Schultz, and Chris 
Jones, a.k.a. M. Slago. Now, Pat, I remember when compact discs were new to the market and everyone was trying to get rid of their vinyl to make room for this new technology. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you refrained from getting rid of your collection. I want to know why you held on to your records when everyone else was jumping to CDs. Oh, uh, don't get me wrong. I did purchase CDs because, uh, y- you know, they they were... It was the new thing, so you know. I mean, if you're a, if you're a music collector, you want to hear how different it sounds from one media to the next. But I always, always, always had vinyl. Um, I, you know, like Jason, I was a big Kiss fanatic when I was when I was a young kid. It went from the Osmonds to Kiss, and and then everything else in between after that. You know, uh, always loved. You know, um, R&B and soul stuff. So I was always a huge Stevie Wonder fan and stuff like that. So I always had those records, the Beatles, Zeppelin, and you know, I got into jazz and all that stuff. The Larry Carlton, the Lee Rittenhouse, the uh, yeah. you know, uh, Anita Baker. Uh, one of one of my favorite uh, all-time R&B artists. Uh, he passed away. His name is Gavin Christopher. So I always had those great, great, um, you know, those uh, Shaka Khan's and all that kind of stuff in my collection how many question how many albums do you have in your collection oh my gosh i don't even know anymore wow yeah (laughs) okay so so it is serious and and, and also it it got us to the point you know i'm i'm married now i have two children and my wife and i actually have an independent record store that we have uh right out of our house okay so I've always been the one to try to turn on people to this next project or this next singer or this next band or this next guitar player or, or you know, even banjo player, whatever. You know, I just love music so much that I try to show everyone else, hey, you know, try listening to this. If you like that, try this. Now, but, you know, vinyl's always been in my heart. Now, with vinyl, you can learn a lot from reading the liner notes. Oh my gosh, it's 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 literally like a Bible. I mean, you know, it's quote unquote the Bible for what you're listening to. That's exactly. what got me into vinyl so much. And you know, CDs were you know, all the information was there. You know, with digital downloads, you don't get anything, so you're just like, okay, who's this? Who's that? But with albums, you know, I was the kid that sat on the floor while I'm listening to the record and just reading who produced it, who played what, who did yeah. this, and you know, and 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 it becomes a family tree after that. Yeah. Erica, what is it about this physical medium of vinyl that makes it so special? Well, when you're playing the record or DJing the record, it's the warmth of the music. And um, as Chris was saying earlier um, about the different ranges of sounds, the EQs, um, you really hear it more in vinyl versus digital. Um, For my role, digital is easier, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a couple of muscle cuts on my right arm (laughs) from carrying all them records up and downstairs in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. But... um, um, you know, in terms of full sound and bringing in the audience and bringing in uh, yourself sonically, vinyl just has that warmth and that range and you really want to sit and listen to it. So even now when I'm listening to vinyl, it's not a clean up, clean the house vinyl. Yeah. 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 No, it's we're listening to it at dinner or uh, we're listening to this um, particular uh, jazz artist. My husband's a huge jazz fan. Okay. And so, you know, Miles... You can't listen to Miles digitally, for no, example. No, you, you got to listen that. to it. You have to listen to it real. Now, real quick, I got 30 seconds left. Yes. M. Slago, as a hip-hop producer, it really, it samples, your musical taste has grown. How, is, has, how has yours grown over the years in collecting vinyl? Uh, I think it's just with hip-hop, 
going back, you always learn you're a student, but then you also are looking for those untapped sounds forever. Yeah. And that will always create that That's joy and keep the dig alive. Okay. Okay. I want to thank you so much. I wish we had more time. I want to thank my guests, Pat Lucero, DJ Erica Schultz, and M. Slago, a.k.a. also known as Chris Jones, for joining us. Keep on digging, y'all. It's Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun with a fellow Middle Tennessean today. I'm with Stephanie Medina, who also goes by DJ Moonchild Steph, and we go record digging. Check it out. What's up, y'all? It's Moonchild Steph. I'm born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. Love music. I work for a nonprofit, and in my free time, I'm a DJ. Well, we're here at Phonolux Records. Yeah. And we're going to dig for some vinyl. Yes, we are. It's one of my favorite record shops in town. Yes. So where do you normally start? So I actually do start in the jazz section normally because it's like right in front of you when you walk in. Okay. And then I'll usually start here. They switch things up a little bit. So it looks like they've put CDs out here, but um, I'll usually come around this way and like look for like any disco or funk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Usually they'll have like 12-inch singles around here on this side as well. That rare single. If I can find something that will make the crowd dance out of set, mm -hmm. um, it's like, all right, got to get it. How often do you hit up thrift stores? You know, not often enough. The last time I went to Goodwill by my house, I actually found breakbeats, like okay. hip-hop stuff that I'm like, wow, would not expect to find at the Brentwood Goodwill. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, usually I just come to the record shops. I like to support the local record shops too when I can. So. I hear that. Yeah. I once found a 12 inch of Soul Makosa <gasps> at the Salvation Army, mint condition in, when I was living in LA. It cost me a dollar. I sold oh it for 250. God. No, you didn't. Oh yeah, I sold it. Wow, the fact that you found that for a dollar. Milt Jackson is great. Milt Jackson's the man. He's amazing. I just love also vibraphones. Like, uh -huh. I just, yeah. 25 bucks. Yeah. I almost kind of just want to listen to it. Like, can you listen? Can we yeah, listen to the records? Yeah, there's a listening station. Oh, okay. We're totally getting yes. down then. That's one of my favorite albums. Really? Ahmad Jamal, Happy Moods. He is Miles Davis's favorite jazz pianist. Okay, there's two songs on here. Yes, that I really, cool. really love. Um, excerpt from the blues. It's just a wonderful live version. It's so romantic and nice. I have a lot of Nancy Wilson. Okay. She's one of my favorite vocalists. Yes. My, like one of my all-time favorite songs is her song, I'm in Love. I don't know if you... Hum a little bit of one. it for me. Um, it's like the intro. The intro goes. Yes. It's just such a yes. feel-good song. Yes. It's a classic right there. <laughs> a lot of his stuff, David Axelrod produced, famous producer, um, a lot of classic hip-hop, particularly a lot of Dr. Dre, 
So if you're ever flipping through and you see produced by David Axelrod, it's worth li- it's worth listening to. to. Yeah. shirt that I'm wearing actually is uh, Ladies of Sound. It's a branch of the Beat Junkies Institute of Sound, but it's spearheaded for women okay. who want to learn how to DJ. So they offer classes and they like build community. One of the co-founders was recently in Nashville because she was touring with Joyce Rice. The co-founder of Ladies of Sound was her touring DJ. Okay. And they stopped in Nashville and I got to meet her and it was just like a really cool full circle moment nice. of uh, connecting with other women who love music and are out there DJing and doing their thing. So mm-hmm. that's yeah. dope. Yeah. Like I used to bring like three crates of records to a set. When I'm really playing like a set set, it's about four hours. Mm-hmm. So I like to have options when I'm playing. For a while, I also used to just lug everything like by hand, and it wasn't until recently that I I finally got a dolly. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, because I've gone to the point where I was like, I can't. That Lou Rawls record right there, You've Made Me So Very Happy. De La Soul's I Am I Be, the title track, You've Made Me So Very Happy. Oh. Pull it out, you'll hear it. The plug two brand with the flavor in the flute. Watch the sniffing, so a sack of shows in demand. I read the diction from the second page. I got the one two gauge baritone to the ism fan. Trees fall so I can play ground with my ink. Hal Jader is also another one of my favorite uh, jazz musicians, just a vibraphonist. And so many, you know, the, the tribe, the tribe samples. Yes. Like, yeah. I like you more and more. You're <laughs> awesome. Thank yes. you. Yeah, no, it's. Vibes just hit different. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <sighs> Bless you. Thank you. The dust from records. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you go record digging after a while and you get to your car or something and you look at your hands. Oh, always. I'm like, if, there, if my hands aren't dirty, then the dog did not get dirty. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Part of the Dusty Fingers crew. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Jason Moon Wilkins, Eddie the Mechanic Buford, the crew at a pawn shop, Jacob Neshawat, and Marvin, DJ Marvski Fowler, for putting me onto crate digging back in 97. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you on Monday, everybody. And be good to each other.